everyone. Welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. One of the most difficult aspects of life to wrestle with is the reality of constant change. Moments come and go, people enter and leave our lives, and we ourselves grow and change and eventually pass away. Everything is impermanent. This is a fundamental and even kind of obvious part of life, but it's also a reality that tends to blend into the background for most of us most of the time. It's almost like a kind of haze that touches everything while being largely invisible. And coming face-to-face with it often leads to feelings of anxiety, uncertainty, and even dread. So today we're going to be exploring impermanence anxiety and learn how to become more resilient in the face of change, living while also letting go. I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, I'd love to start by asking you how you think about this subject broadly. I know it's a very meaningful one to you and has been a part of your your practice and your life for a long time now. I'm hyper-psyched about this topic. Mm, yeah. So I, I've thought of writing my next book titled Time and Timelessness, and I probably mm. won't. It's probably for a niche audience, <laughs> but in any, and I'm not sure I have a book's worth to say. That's always a question. Do you have a chapter here or a book here? Right? Mm-hmm. what you actually can say. In any case, so there's, I think of macro impermanence and micro impermanence. So at the macro level, we had the sweep of time. And I think it's actually really helpful to have an awareness of the broad sweep of time. Things like that are personally helpful to me. But then there's micro impermanence. The fact that if you just look directly, uh, as Heraclitus, I think, pointed out as one of the Greek philosophers a long time ago, you cannot put your finger in the same river twice because the river is constantly changing. It's impermanent. Same with the stream, the river of consciousness. It's constantly changing. And this fact that's under our nose has prompted a lot of deep inquiry Certainly in the Buddhist tradition, which is very much foregrounded, a recognition of impermanence is one of the three marks, so-called, of existence, uh, interdependence, and this really important to not mistranslate word, dukkha, is the third of the three characteristics of existence. Maybe we'll get to that later. And uh, to me, there's a lot of misinformation about impermanence, that somehow it makes life inherently suffering, when in fact we're continuously losing the present moment of experience, it's not inherently suffering. It's only suffering when we try to cling to it as it slips through our fingers continuously. And in any case, meanwhile, that which we're losing is endlessly offset by that which we're gaining in the arising Mm. of the next moment of experience. And that has enormous implications for both personal practice and a kind of connection between the phenomenological and the ontological so I just want to throw that in. So can you, can you translate that for a layman? Here's the scoop to summarize a lot of stuff, just really succinctly. And I want to give a big nod of the hat here to a wonderful book by a physicist, last name Muller, M-U-L-L-E-R. I think it's called Now, The Physics of Time. He's a UC Berkeley retired physics professor. And so he's writing about time. Why is there now? Why is there time? Why do we lose the present moment? Why do we gain the next one? What's going on? And his personal view is that we are living in a four-dimensional space-time universe. So that part's straightforward, four dimensions, three of space, one of time, that is expanding. And we don't notice the spatial expansion because it's on such a vast scale, but the temporal expansion of the universe is what is endlessly pulling us into the future and pulling us into the next moment, which necessarily means we must leave the present moment behind. So all that losingness is an artifact. It's a result of, it's the side effect of the endless gainingness of the temporally expanding universe. And Turning that conceptual understanding into something felt and semi-recurring pulls you into being gobsmacked with gratitude and awe at the expandingness of everything and gives you a kind of trust. I don't want to use the word faith. I could. A kind of trust in what's next because we're constantly being buoyed by and lived by 
the next expanding moment. So it makes it helpful for us. And the bottom line is that, in effect, we're always living in creation. As Professor Muller points out, we're always living in the creation of time, the next moment of time. Anyway, that has really been useful for me, particularly recently, as a way to just, amidst the sorrows of the world and amidst the losses, to just live in a felt awareness of the lovingness, the givingness of the expanding universe in the emergence of the next instant of reality. So there are two tracks that we could have this conversation on. And the first track is a kind of big picture, existentially minded, we're all going to die, what do you do about a track? And I'm extremely interested in that track. As Macro you know. impermanence. Macro impermanence, if you know. Like it, right. It's a consideration that's been very personally meaningful to me. It's had a lot of impact on my life, existential psychology, uh, Irv Yalom, uh, you yeah. know, like all of that good stuff. Okay. Good stuff. Then there's this other track, the second track, and it's the slightly more practical track. The reality that our friendships arise in life and they kind of flow away from us as, as life and circumstance change. Uh, the people that we know and love come into our life, they leave our life. A job ends. There's a moment of transition. Your kids go off to school. All of that kind of very practical stuff is also a manifestation of what we're talking about today, which is, again, living while letting go. You need to release these things, and that releasing is like an inherent part of the process of life. And there's a certain like flow in, flow out between those two tracks. It's possible that for somebody, this kind of like very big picture, four dimensional universe, constantly expanding space time, bro, really does help them kind of release their attachment in those moments as well. But for a lot of people, the, the pain can feel very practical, where that consideration can feel very abstract, or that kind of framing of it can feel very abstract. So one of the things that I definitely want to talk with you about a little bit today, and you can just start us off here if you want to, is how to manage some of the uncomfortable feelings that are associated with that more like practical, granular kind of letting go that we just have to do in the course of our normal lives. Yeah, I think it has to do with kind of like the time scale. What I mean by micro impermanence is a time scale of as close as you can get to the present moment. Sure. Yeah. And when you get mm -hmm. close there, you start noticing that things are continuously changing. Meditatively, you, as your mind gets quieter, you can notice how really quickly they're changing. And then we also know, just pure physics, that things can happen on a time scale of milliseconds, even nanoseconds, right? Tiny, tiny increments of time. So having a sense of impermanence at that level, which then can take you into a sense of a kind of eternal now, that's definitely one thing. And there's a lot of deep wisdom about that territory. And mm -hmm. often what happens is when people deepen in their practice with the micro-temporal scale, you know, the immediacy of the present moment, they actually become more peaceful about these macro issues. That said, I'm really happy to focus here on what I think of as more like macro impermanence. The body's getting older. Your kids are leaving home. Things tend to fall apart. As a thing, I've actually learned a lot from you, Forrest. One of the very first things to do is to be honest with yourself about how you feel about things changing and including ultimately your own existence and realizing that it's normal to be pretty weirded out by change and concerned about it, including certain specific kinds of change, like losing your faculties as you get older, or your children leaving home, or you know, friendships kind of falling apart eventually. Rust never sleeps, right? So it's really normal. And you've educated me about a thing called terror management theory. Yeah, very cool stuff. Which kind of literally in my old background, I'd never heard about it. So can you like give us a little uh, good shtick on terror management theory? Yeah, yeah. This is going to be a quick summary. Of course, I'm I'm not an expert on this, but it was something that I bumped into a couple of times also while doing, while doing the... Um, the episode that we had a little while ago on uh, existential dread and having an existential crisis. Yeah. And so the basic idea here is that it, it's a theory of human behavior. And what people are trying to look at is what drives human behavior, really. And so the idea is that we have an underlying psychological conflict 
that exists based on the presence of two things. And the first thing is that we have a self-preservation instinct. You know, humans basically want to go on living if they can most of the time. And then at the same time, we have an abstract knowledge that death is inevitable. And when that knowledge creeps into the forefront of our consciousness, it creates terror. And so what do we do? We have all of these behaviors that are built around trying to manage that terror in various ways. And this includes everything from like the creation of religion. I mean, lowering death anxiety through the belief in an afterlife. Mm. Various forms of avoidance and distancing that people have from their bodies because our bodies are the primary seat of our mortality. So sometimes dropping into like a really felt sense of the fact that, you know, the body is getting older or it's changing over time can be extremely uncomfortable for us. And, and if you want to interpret this more broadly, you can even think in terms of uh, trying to find various forms of immortality, like through having children. You yeah. know, there's some kind of vague sense that the line continues even though I pass away. And so just that broad framework within which like, to look at human behavior, I thought was itself just abstractly interesting. But also in there, I think that there's some advice about some of the things that do really help people lighten up and relax around the reality that things change over time. And just like you said, I think that a huge part of this process is being honest with ourselves about our lived experience, right? Feeling the feelings, letting them rise, and hopefully not becoming excessively attached to them. But Something I want to ask you about here, Dad, is that when somebody has gone through an experience, that is really destabilizing for them. There's some really meaningful change where you get a sense, you just kind of wake up one day and you realize from now on, things are going to be different. Mm. And I'm never able to go back to a previous moment in my life. That's an extremely difficult experience for somebody. It can be very hard to wrestle with emotionally, particularly when you're in kind of the grip of it. So me telling somebody, hey, if you can lighten up around it, you'll probably be a little happier, mm. might not be that helpful. And I'm wondering, just because you have much more practical experience than I do, like working with people through these kinds of emotional processes, what you've seen be helpful for them? I think it's helpful to make room for understandable grieving mm. and to make room for grieving your way, mourning the loss, feeling the loss, having nostalgia in your way, making room for that. And even if the person next to you is at peace and just fine, let's say with the kids having left home, but for you, it just feels like a hole in your heart every day. You wake up in the morning and your first thoughts are, oh, great, you know, something the kids, and then, oh, they left home 10 years ago. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's your truth. That's really, really, really true. A second thing that helps in the context of honoring mourning and grieving is to be mindful of attachments. Uh, sometimes we can get attached to things being a certain way or attached to having certain people or relationships or experiences in our lives. And the truth is we can't have them anymore, but somehow we're attached to them. And you can feel in your mind, you know, craving, clinging, attachment, and so forth. And so, in effect, what I'm suggesting for starters, two out of three suggestions, I'll get to the third in a second, is to, alongside making room for your, for your grieving, to be mindful about getting attached to certain things. Okay. And then the third one is to live well meanwhile. It's kind of like I would be asked often when people were having to move their child from one school to another you know, what, what's my advice was. And I said, well, for kids very often, it's not a, so much a matter of what they've, what they've left behind, but what they're moving into. And if the new school is a good school, they can make friends soon. If they like the scene, if they like their new bedroom, then within a few weeks, often there's an adjustment. Similarly, when we're living in the new, after something has changed, can we make where we're living, where we're dwelling, as good as we possibly can. So those three for me, grieving, beware attachment, and making the present as good as possible. Those for me are the big headlines. I think that's great advice. And to kind of widen it out a little bit, I've been thinking about this a bit, and a lot of this is drawn from like painful personal experience, where there's this funny tension that exists just around caring about something at all. 
Because the reality is, like, let's look at that example of, um, you know, the empty nester example where child leaves the home. Why do you care? Well, you care because you really love that child. You are deeply invested in that Mm -hmm. child in all of these different ways. And maybe even aspects of your own self-concept have become tied up in being a parent and having a relationship with that kid on a day-to-day basis. Now you don't. You need to evaluate who you are while also being in the midst of this meaningful life change. And so there's this inherent like double-edged sword with caring. And that's kind of really what I wanted to talk with you about today, Dad, is that this notion that the more that we invest in things, inherently, the more disruptive and painful letting them go becomes. To me, I think for a long time, I managed that reality by just not really caring that much mm. in a lot of different ways. By kind of like dipping my toe into the, the pool of living and not fully embracing it in a lot of ways so that I wouldn't have to be so bothered if things didn't go the way that I wanted them to. And I think a lot of people live that way, where they both don't fully confront the reality of what we're talking about here, like the reality of impermanence, and therefore also don't fully go all the way into life. And you know, you can see a lot of classic pl- practical examples of this in our relationships, like the person who's kind of optimal distance, where they kind of like their their girlfriend or their boyfriend or their partner or their whatever, and they're like, but they're like, ah, eh, you know, I'm not all the way in. And so they're managing their own distress in the future yeah. by staying distant in the present. And we live our lives that way. And I think that I certainly lived my life that way for a long time. And I feel like this is kind of exactly the wrong approach. And the way to to really go about it is to just fully embrace the the fear, go through the emotional process about it, and be okay with the reality that there's going to be discomfort associated with it. Um, I said a lot there, though, and I'm just wondering what do you think about all of this? You're naming something that's really common and widespread and understandable. I had a teacher back in the day who used the expression, always holding something back for the last battle something like that, you know, rather than fully yeah. coming in. And and I had an extremely profound personal experience um, in my mid-20s, in which I was very unhappy at the time. And I started wondering why live at all. It wasn't, I wasn't actively suicidal, but it was like a deep reflection. And basically what came to me is that I had not really fully chosen to be here, purely as a psycho- psychological reality that was really true. I was always holding something back, reserved, careful, you know, I hadn't really fully chosen to incarnate. And then I went through a process of fully choosing to play it out on the game board. I was in, just putting my chips, boom, I'm in, I'm in the game. And that's a, that was a moment for me, right? So I think, yeah, you're naming something really true. What's kind of verging on tragic about it, in my observation, is that the truth is the actual opposite. In other words, first of all, the act of letting yourself really care, that truly caring involves courage. What gets missed sometimes in this conversation is that aspect of it, I think. Yeah. Where really embracing the reality of what we're talking about here, impermanence, letting go, things arising, things falling away, really stepping into it requires us to be really courageous. Yeah. Like we have to have courage in order to to do that. And the lack of that is I think what really leads people to kind of like buy in half-heartedly. I was afraid about a lot of things, I think. And I wasn't willing for a long time to kind of marshal that direct that direct emotional resource, for lack of a better way of putting it. Yeah. Full investment. Yeah, full investment, which of course, yeah, it put me more at risk, like put me more vul- made me more, more vulnerable to other people in some ways. Yeah. And then so the question becomes, okay, what do you do in order to be able to cultivate that courage on the one hand and also build up meaningful emotional and psychological supplies that allow us to both like fully sink into the water yeah. while also not trying to hold it in our hands as it slips through it. And so there's this balance of those two things. Yeah, and building on what you're saying, this common approach, which I've lived, you've talked about it too, part of what, like I said, is almost tragic about it and poignant is that it's actually almost always really wrong. That Mm. 
if you have a situation and you've kind of held back somewhat in a friendship, let's say, or a project at work or a career, and then the project ends, the friendship ends, or maybe you're playing sports and the game ends, and you walk off the field and you know you held back, that kind of sucks. That doesn't feel yeah, good. Totally. On the other hand, yeah. right? Better to have loved and lost than never have loved at all, as the saying puts it. That actually, when we go full in, when we really bring our heart to it, and then if it ends, if we're not successful, we don't feel that bad about it, ironically, paradoxically. So in a lot of ways, the safest strategy is to give your heart. And there's this part of it where it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, exactly uh, like you're saying. You know, too. people can... Yeah, so we we have the fear, we're avoiding the fear at all costs, and our avoidance of it just causes it to come in various kinds that's of ways, right. right? Right. And I just think that that's so true of so much in life here, where yeah. we have these concerns, some of which are rational, some of which are not, and the fact that we have the concern bears the concern out. I know it's like we're, we can't stand waiting for the second shoe to drop that we're sure will drop, so we pick a fight with that person, or we totally. just start withholding the goodies for them, and then they confirm our beliefs by, oh yeah, you know, rejecting us, uh, or you know, being mean to us, things like that. Isn't it interesting that the safest possible strategy is to go all in, relatively undefended, and it's, it's kind of like a trust fall experience in a weird sort of way. Yeah. You know what I mean? How you do those trust fall oh, exercises yeah. at like camp or whatever. And yeah. certainly for me, I don't know if you were one of these people, dad, but I was definitely the person who went in like butt first, you know, full oh, hip yeah. crease, like very difficult to catch for other people. But if you actually lean back and just let yourself go, then you're relatively safe. Ironically. That's interesting. So maybe there's something there. And, I, and it kind of goes to, if I could pick up on this. So you're summarizing a body of work terror management theory, which involves certain explanations sometimes for things like religion. Yeah, um, it's yeah. a theory. What's interesting in it is that of the material in terror management theory that you listed, none of it was about managing the sure knowledge of your own mortality by really mm. leaning into life fully. And as you put it, squeezing the juice out of the orange every day which seems like such a wise strategy. Precisely because your days are numbered. I think mm -hmm. you told me recently about a book, what is it, 4,000 Weeks? 4,000 Weeks, yeah. So I recently talked to Oliver Berkman. Uh, he's the author of 4,000 Weeks. It's a great book, would strongly recommend it. Uh, he's also a lovely guy. And one of the things that stood out to me from that conversation is just this notion that he wrote about a bit in the book, but that we also kind of just found while talking about it, of, of living your life almost like the prologue to some other story that's going to happen in the future, when the reality is like, no, whatever it is that's happening for you right now, that's just your life. Like, it's time to fully buy into that. And I definitely, again, I definitely lived in that way for an extremely long time, for a better part of 30 years. I treated like most of life like, oh, there will be this other round that happens in the future. It's like, no, my dude, you get one round. This is the one. <laughs> so like, what do you want to do with it at that point? It becomes a very practical question. You know, one of the things I want to want to focus on a little bit now, Dad, is just talking about different ways to, to deal with this, essentially, yeah. uh, because we have those two tracks. And I think that we can talk about it on either level, either the more moment to moment micro consideration of this feeling of like rising and falling. And I do think that stepping more into a felt sense of that can actually be very, very helpful, even when it comes to the kind of bigger picture, more like practical day-to-day -day forms of letting go that we have to do that aren't so ephemeral or existential in nature. But even so, it can be supremely useful to just like contact that reality fully. Yeah. And so anyways, I, I don't know if you have any anything that you want to name as we start to do that that you haven't already. But I think that we should swing the conversation that way a little bit. Well, I want to quote one of my favorite teachers, initials FMH. He writes, <laughs> So there are these twin, seemingly at odds poles, this full immersion of ourselves in the pool and embrace of the water without trying to cling to it. None of us is getting out of this alive. The water's flowing. Do you want to scream and thrash? or enjoy the fall. You know, it's funny, uh, Evan Thompson, who maybe we'll get on the show sometime, wonderful philosopher, consciousness, including brain science related to consciousness. He, he wrote a book, Mind in, Mind in Life, 
mind in life, mm -hmm. in life. And uh, he uses the metaphor of standing streaming, of water flowing over a boulder. There's, it's a standing wave, but it's also streaming. So there's some stability and continuity, coherence, in the patterning of the standingness while still being endlessly changing. And there's something about that combination in what you're describing yeah. with no need for screaming and threshing. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash beingwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash beingwell. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. Oh, that is a transition. Yeah, we can definitely uh, explore some very practical things, some practical ways to manage uncertainty and impermanence. I definitely want to give a shout out to Alan Watts' classic, The Wisdom of Uncertainty. You know, you've identified some really good things to pay attention to. I'll start by talking about cultivating a sense of purpose and meaning in the life that mm -hmm. you have. Mm -hmm. You know, that, yeah. that you're going in a certain direction. It's meaningful because you have certain aims. So your life is meaningful in reference to those aims. And to realize mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. we have fundamental responsibility and authority when it comes to making up the fundamental aims of our life. They're constructed. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, we're given certain aims you know, biologically, but beyond that, sometimes culturally. But that said, fundamentally, it's existential. It's up to you to decide where you're headed in this life, what you value, what your hopes and dreams are, and so forth. So those having those and knowing what they are, then suddenly life is meaningful in reference to them. But if we don't have those standards, those values, those aims, those purposes, those callings, those longings, then we don't have a reference point that we can create meaning in mm. terms of. Mm -hmm. So that was, that's one. Yeah, one of the things that we talk about on the podcast all the time that's been just deeply meaningful for me 
again, you know, it's the being well podcast drinking game. You take a shot whenever Forrest mentions agency, or uh, I don't know, uh, something else. Doesn't we? I don't want to. I don't want to advocate for for taking shots while listening to the podcast. You know, this going to be a whole. Um, you know this going to be a whole TikTok yeah. thing now. People are being videotaped. Fill, so. fill out your bingo card. Fill out your bingo card. Let's put it that way. Okay, that's a better one. You fill out your bingo card. We have uh, like um, welcome to being well is like the center square. Everybody gets that right off the bat. And then whenever Forrest mentions agency, that's a pretty easy yeah, one. Yeah, and they're get. drinking matcha. Um, it's not alcoholic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, for it's sure. Very wholesome. For sure. Not alcoholic. Purified <laughs> not water. Alcoholic. <laughs> okay. Well, anyways, so we've got agency and acceptance, right? It's like our classic little balance between yeah. these two things that we talk about all the time. And for me, that's really what a lot of this material boils down to around living while letting go, right? Because on the one hand, we do want to fully step in. We want to fully claim what's there to claim. We want to, you know, to use the the line that you've already said, like squeeze the juice out of the orange was just a phrase that I bumped into a while back and I don't know, it kind of stuck. On the one hand, while also the hand can get too tight, you know, it, it's like the right amount of pressure. Um, and the hand getting too tight is when we kind of stop accepting that the orange is gonna gonna go away one day and the juice is gonna roll down the arm and then it's gone. Whatever it is that, you know, pick your metaphor here. And I do think that there's this way where fully claiming what we can do really helps us lighten up about what we can't. Because, at least speaking personally, when I feel like I'm really on top of my material and I'm prepped and I'm ready to do something. If I make a mistake along the way, at least I know that I did what I could. You know, I I laid things down ahead of time. I gave it an honest effort. And if it didn't come through, well, you know, it doesn't come through. Everything doesn't come through. That's the way it is. So that, at least for me, is a real resource. Kind of reflecting on this a bit, a couple things. One is I think it's helpful to have the recognition that things fall apart. Things break. They fall apart. You know, the kitchen drawer has the tendency to move toward disorganization. That's entropy, right? Things move toward disorganization. Yeah. And to just kind of understand that, there's a classic line from Ajahn Chah, one of the teachers no longer alive in, I think, Thailand. He held up a cup and he said, see this cup, for me, it is already broken. So he's appreciating mm -hmm. it until it's broken, but he recognizes that it is of the nature of all things that, all conditioned phenomena that arise have the nature to disperse eventually. That's just part of reality. And to kind of get that, like, oh, okay, that, that happens. Friendships fade. You know, things you try to do, they, they, they kind of they, they go along for a while, and then nobody's buying your book anymore. You know, they just kind mm -hmm. of, they kind of end. And they ha and to, to realize that's just true. And then what to do about it, I think, a lot is to appreciate it while it's happening. Yeah. Do the best you can to keep it happening. Don't underestimate the power of entropy. And in other words, keep repairing your relationships. That's been a huge lesson for me about long-term friendships, long-term relationships, that we need to keep injecting, repair, counter-entropic, organizing, cohering information into a system to keep promoting the ongoingness of the fabric, which tends to naturally fray and tear over time. That's a good mm -hmm. one. Second, let people change. Your kids are going to change. Your friends are going to change. Your spouse is going to change. Let people change. Give them breathing room to change. Be cool with it if you can. You know, at some point you may decide that you're not that into them anymore because they've changed too much, okay? But on the whole, realize they're going to change. They're not always going to be the same. Here's another one. Let yourself change. Mm, mm -hmm. Let yourself honor also kind of the developmental stages you're in. Maybe you're a 20-year-old trying to act like a 40-year-old. Nah, be a 20-year-old. Uh, maybe you're a 70-year-old <laughs> trying to act like a 20-year-old. Nah, your rock climbing days are you know, hard climbing's behind you. <laughs> is, this, is this coming from personal experience here, Dad, with a rotator cuff and all of that recently? Is that what's yeah, going that's on? That's right. Here? That's right. But let yourself change. Let yourself be different. Let yourself grow into the new, including psychologically. I think that's really that's a good takeaway too. Yeah, and then I think a huge part of the conversation becomes like, what makes us more resilient in the face of that change? Right. What allows us to just be like, yes, change is a thing. 
We're going to accept it to the extent that we can. People are going to change. We're going to change. What makes it more okay? And I think part of it is just our relationship with change itself. How do we frame change inside of ourselves? How do we think about it? If change is just a source of instability, uncertainty, and pain for a person, if that's their internal framing on it, things change and this is what I feel in response. Instability, uncertainty, pain. Wow. It's going to be really hard to accept change. It's going to be really, really difficult to just kind of be okay when things in your life destabilize in various ways. And whether it's kind of the classic uh, motivational phrases around like changes opportunity or however you want to think about it, I do think it's really helpful to unpack how we think about change and transformation in general. Are we threatened by it? Are we made uncomfortable by it? Do we dislike the idea of other people waking up one day and just being like, hey, I want to have to say be fundamentally different than yesterday was in some kind of way, and so I'm just going to step into it differently? Does that make us feel uncomfortable? And then why? And can we go through a process of of relating to that maybe a little bit differently? Uh, that's definitely been helpful for me. It really gets at a broad moral point, actually, which is giving other people the rights that we want to have for ourselves. We want to have the right to change. We want to have the right to our own preferences. We want to have the right to wake up in the morning and as the kind of crystallization of a lot of experiences, realize that a certain situation or relationship isn't good for us anymore and we, we need to change it uh, or exit from it. We, we want to hold that right for ourselves, right? Well, guess what? The person sleeping next to you, sitting across from you at breakfast or across a table in, in your workplace, they have that right too. And that's part of it here, that we want to give them the right, you know, to make those kind of changes as well, you know, that we hold to ourselves. And just like how we can change how we relate to change broadly, we can also change our own self-concept, how we think about ourselves, yeah. right? So why is change scary if change is scary? Well, a lot of people will probably respond to that something along the lines of, or at least implicitly, they'll say something along the lines of, I'm kind of fragile. Yeah. The world is big and scary. I am small and relatively weak. Changes out in the world can crush me in these various ways. And one of the things that I think was really great about how I was reared by you and mom, dad, is, or maybe it was some, I don't know, nature or nurture, who knows here. But I think that your guys' teaching definitely had a fair amount of involvement with this one, was that like I view myself fundamentally as pretty sturdy. I think mm. that if bad stuff happens, I'm going to end up pretty okay at the end of the day. Some of this mm. is just from fortunate life experience and the impact of privilege and a lot of things that are important to consider in these kinds of conversations. But also, it's just my self-concept. I, I think I kind of popped out with that mentality to an extent. And how do you think about yourself? And how can you continue to work toward a, a self-concept that is more change resilient, where you really believe in yourself in that kind of way and cultivate that underlying feeling of like self-worth. That's where trauma gets tough because sure. under certain kinds of traumatic experience, we leave ourselves and or we feel shattered by it. And so that sense of a coherent, ongoing, continuing, underlying beingness, the one to whom things happen, is blown up. So then there's a mm. real fear of, of continuity there. Just naming that. No, it's worth naming for sure. Yeah. For me, how it shows up is first the recognition of fragility. Like you said, I'm amazed that anything hangs together at all. You know, it's just <laughs> kind of amazing that things stick together, including bodies and relationships and all. So it's very, we're, we're fragile. And eventually, all fragile things fall apart sooner or later. It's just going to happen. And so that then brings one into a kind of tenderness toward others who are fragile. To put it a certain blunt way, every being is dying right before our eyes. Mm -hmm. It's not the dramatic ending in a movie, you know, the last few breaths or the last few minutes. We're all dying before each other's eyes. I never really thought about that for us, but it's really intense. Like I'm looking at you and you're dying. You're looking at me, I'm dying. So there's the tenderness and the carefulness and the thoughtfulness for how we land on people with hobnailed boots, you know, or with gentleness and respect. 
And then treating yourself with that same kind of tenderness because you're falling apart slowly as well. And it reminds me of the line about how Hemingway, he was asked once, how did you go bankrupt? He said, gradually, then suddenly. (laughs) 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 We are gradually and then suddenly falling apart, all of us. Yeah. Yeah. And so can we be kind to ourselves about that? Yeah. And I think a big part of this is is just how do you how do you relate to and think about that yeah. gradual process of falling apart? I forget where I exactly I bumped into this, but when we were doing the existential crisis episode, I bumped into these various ways that people deal with these kinds of existential thoughts, which can be very disruptive for people and certainly have been very disruptive for me in the past. And a lot of the time, the first step is repression, right? We just try to avoid interaction with the thought. We push it down. We don't deal with it. Another strategy is avoidance or distraction, mm-hmm. where we kind of abandon the, the confrontation of the material by just like not thinking about it, you know, distracting ourselves with hedonism, not interacting with these thoughts, kicking the can down the road. We have spoken in the past with Frank Ostaseski, who is a wonderful guy if you're interested in this, I would strongly recommend his book and his writing in general. And one of the things that I remember Frank saying is that he does hospice work, is that he's sat with so many people who are going through the dying process. And the overwhelming majority of them essentially never thought about the reality that they were going to die before they were in the moment of dealing with that. And I think that's just true. Most people just kind of kick the can down the road for essentially their entire lives. And then they end up there and There's a lot of material to unpack in that moment often for people. But then there's another strategy, and it's a a term from psychology. It's called sublimation. And it's basically when we take the energy of these kinds of thoughts and we try to convert them into something else. And one way to overcome an existential crisis is basically by incorporating it into us and on some level, like where we refocus that energy toward more positive ends. Maybe you're the kind of person who turns things into art. Maybe you're the kind of person who really directs this this energy toward creating something good out in the world. Whatever it is, we can kind of use it in a way to actually imbue our lives with more meaning. And there's something about that that I was just like very touched by when I learned about it. You know, it's a special moment for me to ever hear you use a psychoanalytic term. Like that's a real <laughs> that's a real special day. <laughs> Anyway, no, it's totally true. And I think for me, this is the really big takeaway. And it's the wisdom of everybody. Live well, meanwhile. Mm-hmm. Whatever your conditions are. There, it's your last day in the hospital bed. Live well, meanwhile, right? It's the days we live until the movie just stops, which sometimes it stops suddenly. You go to sleep, you don't wake up. You have a stroke, something happens. You're in a car accident, something happens. The movie stops. And uh, live well, meanwhile. That's just such so fundamental. And, you know, to me, alongside the sense of fragility, the fragility of the world, the fragility of oneself, the frailty of it all, what's the obvious conclusion? Live well, meanwhile. Max it, you know? Whatever that is for you. And, you know, there are different guidelines. I shared recently that for me, on looking back on my own life, including really, really, really reckoning with some big mistakes I've made along the way, you know, so just kind of evaluate my own life, at least, in terms of, did I bring a whole heart? Did I try? And did I learn along the way? For a lot of people, those are kind of big markers of, hey, and when you go to bed, you look back and you think, yeah, I put my heart into it. I brought my heart to it. Didn't have to be perfect, but I was whole, I brought my heart to it. I was good-hearted. I made efforts, and I learned. I grew in some ways. I was open to growing. Yeah. I think that's a great framework, really helpful. And then beyond that, gosh, I just think it's so extraordinary to appreciate the precious opportunity of a human life, right? Just think of all the weird things, Forrest, that had to happen to make you. You are here as a a body that is the result of an unbroken line of parentage going back through 300,000 years of human history, right? You had a mother who was the, you know, the child, the daughter of a mother, just do the maternal line, daughter of a mother all the way back. And now we're starting to get into 500,000 years ago, Java man or whatever, right? Stone, you know, and then you're into the Millions monkeys. of years before then. Yeah, and then you're into it. It's around. an unbroken yeah, totally. line. Yeah. Going, like, what? 
Yeah. And there is some, and to maybe like, to kind of interpret part of what you're saying here, dad, which I think is so great. Like there is something about the bigness of that. Yeah. There are kind of different reactions to it, right? One reaction, oh my God, now I feel so small and meaningless. And it's certainly possible for people to have that reaction out of that. That's a really dumb reaction. Oh, I'm not supposed to be judgmental. (laughs) Okay. Sorry. <laughs> well, that is that is a reaction people could right. have. You know, it is. I get it. it. Is. I, I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying it's a reaction. I apologize um, like, for offending people. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the other reaction, which is what I think you're pointing to here, is like, oh my god, how amazing! Yeah, stunned gratitude, and try not to or suck. <laughs> Do you feel constrained by this or do you feel freed by this in some way? And in some ways responsible. I got to say that too. Make the most of it. Yeah, responsible to make the most of it on some level. Yeah, yeah. That, that can totally be a part of it too. And I think that the more that we can orient toward the opportunity, the uniqueness, the the bright and shininess of, yeah. you know, at least in my cosmology, this one shot that we got at doing this, you know, the the more meaning we can invest it in and the more that we can like really step into it. So part one, nothing I was saying there about the fact that any of us who are alive are the result of literally an unbroken line, stretching back through millions of years of, you know, mothers having babies who had babies. That doesn't mean you have to do it yourself. That doesn't mean you oh, have sure. to have yeah. babies yourself. Okay, yeah. Th- thank you for mentioning that, Dad. But no, I wasn't even that didn't even occur to me. But thank you for mentioning it. Yeah, yeah. for some, and I want to be really clear about it. Okay, that part. Yeah. Gosh, where was I? Part two, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh, what I mean is, it's the contingentness of it all, right? And for some reason, I'm visualizing a pachinko. You know, the Korean novel, movie, the game, pachinko. So you see the ball and it falls down, right? Through all these little nails and it ends up in a slot. And so if we just think of ourselves or do it like you are a grain of dirt or sand in a vast landslide, or you are a molecule of water in an avalanche, all these molecules, all these causes upstream, and suddenly you are now here and conscious. Think of all the wildly improbable events that had to lead to your birth. And you're the inheritor of that incredible good fortune. Maybe it wasn't perfect. I, I get that. Okay. But still, would you rather have a human birth or be a lizard or a mosquito? And there's something about the oddness of that that just, I think, can bring people into a, a way of being with impermanence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All those events had to happen so you could be here. And you are the unfolding of the universe locally. Wow. Have a good one. And as as we kind of get to the end, at least, of like this part of the conversation, something that's occurring to me that I kind of wish I had said earlier on is that the fact that things are going to change means that the question is not, how do we want to attempt to control change in our life? That is a meaningful point of intervention for some people, making good choices about how things are going to change, setting yourself up to protect yourself from problematic changes and make the the chances of good changes as high as they can be. Like, okay, that's all that's all good stuff. The real question here is how do we want to go about relating to it? That's the fundamental question. Like, how do we want to relate to it as it's happening? And I think that that is such a different way of thinking about it than the way that we normally walk around thinking mm. about it where we're really concerned about that sort of like, okay, how am I going to stop the shoe from hitting me or dodge out of the way if the shoe comes down? How am I going to max the the pots of gold that I stumble across as I walk down the street? But really the enduring feature is like the thoughts and feelings that we're bringing to this process inside of ourselves, And that's the key variable we're leaning on it really changes our relationship with it the most. Do you mind if I throw you some just like absolute catnap at the end of this episode, Dad? And maybe we just do like five or ten minutes on this here. Sure. You don't you don't know that this is coming, but I, no, I think you no. love this. So oh. so we had the the micro and the macro, right? That you dropped us into. And the micro is that more direct experience of the reality of an impermanent moment that falls away from us, arising and falling, arising and falling in every moment, which is for those who are into this kind of thing, a very key part of certain kinds of Buddhist practice, really stepping into that awareness. 
And then the second was like more what we kind of talked about during the episode, either kind of big picture yeah. existentialism or big picture practical. Wow, your life's going to change. How do you want to relate to it? For those who are into this kind of thing, do you want to talk a little bit at the end here about how somebody actually can go into more of an experience of that micro impermanence that you were talking about? Oh, sure. And when I say micro, I really mean it on, on a micro time scale. In other yeah. words, observing what's the happening. Of a moment. Yeah, in the next second or two of the subjective now. There's some research that has to do with a kind of rever reverberating uh, circuit in the neural substrates of consciousness, such that the subjective now yeah, is kind of a second-ish, one to two-ish seconds long. Mm -hmm. So it's in that time frame. But that's what I mean by micro. There's tremendous teaching about this, mainly in the Theravadan tradition, uh, sometimes also described as insight tradition, or vipassana. A fair amount of mindfulness practice itself is an awareness of change, things changing, just literally the sensations of a breath over the course of an inhalation for a few seconds, and then over the course of an exhalation, a few seconds. And there can be even as well an awareness of the kind of the overall attitude or state of being, the orientation toward the breath, let's say, as it's occurring. So these are things you can pay attention to. There are deep practices where people will go into a lot of steadiness of their mind in meditation, concentration practices, sometimes described as shamatha practices or samadhi practices, where there's a the state of being gets increasingly quiet. And so that which is changing becomes more and more evident. And on shorter and shorter timescales with more and more granular specificity. I had a teacher of mine who described his month long retreat in Burma. It might have been three months. Every day, the teacher said, Tell me something new that you've noticed about the sensations of breathing at the upper lip. And he could do that for the first maybe week. But after that, how do you notice eight different things or 21 different things? about sensations of breathing at the upper lip. So you're really becoming very acutely aware. In those trainings, there is a stage that is marked that I want to call out with a kind of warning. If you go really deeply into this. I love that we're talking about this, by the way. This, I totally know where you're going, and this is so cool, so go ahead. Oh, yeah. okay. I never know if I yeah. can really go inside baseball, as it were. But you Yeah, know. totally. We're, we're in overtime here, man. Go knock, your, knock yourself out. I love okay. this. Okay. So in a path that's, that's often called the stages of insight path, there's a stage that's marked on that path in which there's such moment-to-moment -moment immersion in the recognition of of endless endings, losings, the losingness, the passing awayness, that it can create a kind of despair. Yeah, I think it's called, is, is it sunyata? Is that like the right way to say it? Am I, am I in the right ballpark here? If I follow you right, the word sunyata means emptiness, or is translated typically. It's the like direct experience of it. Yeah, there yeah. can be that experience of it, yeah. yeah. And that sense of things existing emptily, you know, is available in more macro ways too. That said, yeah. And so sometimes people get freaked out. And I myself have never done that very specific training. It does seem useful for me to call out that stage and to encourage people, if they're actually getting to that point in their practice, to work with a teacher who's very familiar with that. That's a good thing. Common sense tells me it's also very helpful to tolerate the letting go to realize that we're continuously letting in. Or even mm. more exactly, we are being let into the next moment of time, the next moment in the unfolding Big Bang universe. And so as you are aware of what you are endlessly receiving, it helps us become more comfortable with recognizing the endless letting go. And in that recognition of the endless letting go, it's pragmatically incredibly useful because what happens more and more is you start feeling at peace in the present as it is. You know, there's a lightness in your, it's like you're holding the rope of time loosely and gently in your hands as it passes through. As Joseph Goldstein points out, it's when we clench that rope through clinging, craving, etc. That's when there's friction and it burns. So as you 
become more rested in the fact of endless change, you start holding the rope of life more lightly and loosely, which helps you be more at peace. You also become less caught up in attaching to passing phenomena because they're continuously changing. So you get lighter about that. And also you become less self-preoccupied because what starts to also happen is that you realize that the apparent I who is witnessing the changing is changing itself, is changing itself. And so you start recognizing that the sense of self and the perspective of self is dynamic. It's changing too. And so that then helps you take yourself more lightly (laughs) and take Mm -hmm. life not quite so personally. So there's a reason why the Buddha and others as well who talk about, you know, be here now, be in the present, are really, the only way to be in the present is to be not swept away by trying to hold on to what's changing. So to be in the present, you have to be comfortable with change. You have to you have to live at the peak of the standing wave as it goes over the boulder, as we talked about, continuously changing to stay in the present. Uh, you have to be okay with change. And uh, so as they all these various teachers praise this, there's so much that's valuable in the recognition of impermanence on more of a micro scale, which must include the recognition of arising continuously. Mm. Which then can also, as I said at the very beginning, take you into this this sense of peaceful gratitude, just almost ecstatic, awestruck gratitude at being gifted endlessly by um, the expanding universe. And also just to maybe put a bow on this episode a little bit here, and I thought that was, by the way, fantastic to add and, and really helpful because it frames it inside of this broader context and it yeah. really granularizes things that people can do if they want to be engaged with this kind of a practice in a serious way. And what it also does when you're seeing the moment-to-moment nature of reality, you're framing it in terms of this broader process that's going on all the time, you're recognizing that things go up, things go down, you know, like riding a wave in different kinds of ways, you start to see yourself as more of a, a piece of this process. Yeah not like merely a cog in a machine in a way that feels sort of, oh, this makes me feel small, but rather just like one more expression, one more, like I think this is a line that you like to use, that's something like a local expression of a, a more global reality or a broader reality, you know? Yeah. And there is something in that that can also really, I think, help us lighten up, relax, feel feel the right balance of big and important while also feeling like a grain of sand on a grain of sand in a way that it can actually be kind of pleasant, which I understand it, it might not feel that way when I say it to people, but at least for me, it can be kind of pleasant. Here's another wrinkle that I'm actually surprised yeah. we didn't get into because it's so important, which is that so much of what bothers us is not here anymore. The only place it's here is in our mind. In our minds. Yeah, you're totally right. This is a great point. Yeah. Like that thing happens with that other person. They said that thing. They did that thing. That event is no longer here. It is dispersed. There are no longer any significant consequences from it, except in the rehashing inside your own mind. That's the only place where it is existing because it is being actively constructed, you know, inside your own mind. And that can be actually really helpful to appreciate. Like, it, it's not here anymore. It is gone because it's in the past. Yeah, what's interesting about this whole thing is that we're talking in terms of like the pain of letting go of good things, right? What's funny about it is that we can also struggle to let go of the difficult things in just the same way that we struggle to let go of the really enjoyable things. And isn't that so funny, right? There's something about the nature of things themselves or the nature of the brain, the nature of the mind that makes us want to cling as a baseline, almost regardless of whether or not the material that we're clinging to has a positive emotional valence or a negative emotional valence, whether it's enjoyable or whether it's painful, we cling to it anyway. And just kind of seeing that and getting really real about that inside of our own psychology can also be like a great insight that can really help to start free us from this just underlying tendency. 
Today we talked about how we can learn to live while letting go. Stepping fully into our lives, making the most of them, taking them seriously, cannonballing into the pool even, while also accepting the reality of change. That our friendships are going to change, our family systems are going to change, we ourselves are going to change. And part of that change process includes death and dying, the reality that Everyone we know and love will eventually pass away, and we will go through that same process ourselves. So how can we do those two poles at the same time, fully embracing life while also fully embracing the reality of impermanence? And Rick began today's episode by talking about these two different layers that we can engage this question at. And the first layer is the way that we do most of the time in the course of our lives. We're thinking about how maybe a friendship is changing in some way, or we're wrestling with the reality that our kids have left home, or we're thinking about having kids in the future. Those kinds of big-picture macro changes. And then there's the second track, where we can experiencing the changing nature of reality and permanence in its purest form by getting closer and closer and closer to the moment of right now, seeing right now arise and seeing right now fall away. And as we talked about in more detail at the end of the conversation, that sort of practice of coming into right now, really experiencing impermanence as it is occurring, is a core part of some forms of Buddhist practice. But it's not just this kind of abstract theoretical exercise. This really funny thing happens as we wrestle with that in a direct way. Our acceptance of it can really enable us to engage with these practical considerations from a much more wholehearted place. Because it's really natural for us to feel anxiety connected to change and impermanence. One of the things that we talked about during the conversation was called terror management theory, which is this broader theory of human behavior and the idea that so much of it flows out of the conflict between two things that are both true. First, having a self-preservation instinct while also knowing that death is inevitable. And this leads, understandably, to terror. A lot of human behavior is then essentially an attempt to manage that terror, whether this be the creation of cultural beliefs, like uh, the belief in an afterlife, an avoidance of our bodies in different kinds of ways, attempts to become immortal by leaving something behind, whether they be you're the book that you've been planning on writing for 15 years now, or they be having kids, or whatever else we try to do in this life to leave something that lives on after us. And the point in this is just to recognize that these are natural emotions that people face in the course of their life. Letting go is hard. Coming to grips with not just this kind of ephemeral notion of the nature of reality, but just like very practical changes in life can be an emotionally difficult experience. So how do we wrestle with it? How do we become more impermanence resilient? And one of the real answers here to me gets to this real dichotomy with caring. Caring is a courageous act because the more care that we invest something with, the more important it becomes to us, the more pain we open ourselves to as the reality of impermanence sets in upon it. Everything is going to change. The things that we love are going to change just as the things that we dislike are going to change. But we can watch the way in which the brain clings to both of those things, as we talked about toward the end of the conversation. Or it's funny, we expect to cling to the things that we like, but what else do we cling to? Resentment, ill will, irritation, frustration. I've clung to all of those things in my life so many times. And so it's not just the enjoyable that we cling to in our experience, it's really everything. So we're trying to unpack that as a whole category. So it's not just the enjoyable stuff that we cling to, right? And seeing the ways in which we also cling to the more painful aspects of our experience can help us really relate to this territory as a whole. And what you see in so many people, and I lived this in my life for a very long time, is this kind of half-hearted buy-in, where we're treating the immediacy of our lives, the truth of right now, this is what you got, what are you going to do with it, like almost it's the prologue to some future game that we're going to be playing. We dip our toe into the pool of living so it becomes easier to pull our foot out of it if we need to. And this means that people can kick the can of the fear down the road. The fear of wrestling with this impermanence anxiety, the fear of death, whatever it is to them, they can just defer it into the future because they haven't fully come into the present. 
But the funny thing is that even as we barely put our toe into the water of life, there's this other part of the brain going on at the same time. The brain was literally built to cling and crave. That's how it acquired resources that allowed us to go on living. It's built into our evolutionary biology. The self-preservation instinct compels us to cling to life itself. And so you can see these two things present in people at the same time. On the one hand, the sort of listlessness around embracing the fullness of life, while at the same time, this clinging attachment to certain often problematic aspects of it. So what helps us deal with all of this? Well, a couple of things. First, cultivating a sense of purpose and meaning. Feeling like your time here matters in some way, even if it's just to you. Then second, learning how to balance agency and acceptance. We talk about this all the time on the podcast, but to come back to it again, balancing claiming the agency that's there while also accepting the limitations of that agency. When we feel like we've really done what we can in life, letting go actually becomes a lot easier because we know that our effort end of the day was not the problem. Then there's how we relate to the nature of change itself. Change is implicit in existence. We can't change the fact that there's change. All we can do is relate to it in a new and different way. And a big part of that are the beliefs that we have about ourselves. Do we think of ourselves as somebody who is sturdy and capable and stable? And sure, even if we change, even if things change around us, we can bear that change. We can continue to relate to it in useful ways. And even as circumstances change around us, we can go on dealing productively. It really is possible to build up that belief in yourself over time, and it really makes letting go so much easier. Another method of dealing with this comes from psychoanalytic theory, and it's called sublimation. It's when we take the energy that is associated with some kind of a difficult experience and funnel it in a more useful or positive direction. Maybe you're the kind of person who turns things into art. Maybe you're the kind of person who just really loves thinking about something deeply. Maybe it's really meaningful to you, as it has been really meaningful to me recently, to just have more moments throughout the day where you come into direct contact with the feeling that things are going to end. You're going to end, other people are going to end, circumstances that you like are going to end. But there's something about feeling the nowness of that that actually has this really warm and loving tenor associated with it. That there's this feeling of, wow, how incredible this whole thing is, and how incredible is it that I am a part of it, and that I can be one little piece, a grain of sand on a grain of sand, in the broader mural of existence. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I've been looking forward to this episode for a while, and I'm really glad that we talked about it. We did get a little abstract during this one. I find these episodes very enjoyable to record, but I hope that people also like listening to them. Please let us know how you felt about it. You can leave a comment on YouTube or leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Those are two of the best ways to express your feedback. Also, you can send us an email if you would like, contact at beingwellpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you could find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple of dollars a month, you can support the show and you will receive a ton of bonuses in return. These are things like ad-free versions of the episodes, expanded show notes that I write for most episodes, and transcripts of everything that we create. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.